Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Back in January, Brendan Greeley, who covers the U.S. economy for the Financial Times, was in San Diego. He was there for the annual meeting of the American Economic Association. And I went to a panel that featured uh, Janet Yellen, former uh, Fed chair, and a couple of other important smart people. And at the time, things were great. We were, I guess, in January at 3.6% unemployment. Then in February, it went back down to 3.5%. They all said the same thing, which is that we have to have automatic stabilizers in place before the next recession. How aggressively can fiscal policy be deployed given the risks associated with the buildup in government debt? A conservative suggestion relevant for the U.S. is to strengthen the automatic stabilizers. It's something that Congress could do before the next recession, and I believe should do. An automatic stabilizer is a fancy way of saying that when things get bad, The federal government pays salaries, it pays businesses, it just sort of makes sure that it continues to have money flowing into the economy when businesses pull back. The trouble is that by the time the coronavirus outbreak hit the real economy, the U.S. didn't have the kind of robust stabilizers Janet Yellen had in mind back in January. This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene. In the past few weeks, the U.S. government has moved to try to get cash to American workers and businesses. It's allotted nearly $300 billion for direct cash payments to taxpayers. It's also vastly expanded unemployment insurance. And it's earmarked more than a trillion dollars in relief for corporations, state and local governments, and small businesses, all in an effort to catch an economy in free fall because of the pandemic. But it's proving difficult. We're inventing stabilizers, and every stumble that happens at every level of government and every chain in the financial system is a reminder that Janet Yellen was right. We did need automatic stabilizers in place before the next recession. We didn't get there. In January, while Brendan Greeley was at the American Economic Association meeting in San Diego, Maren Pereira was zipping across Washington, D.C. She was meeting with clients, measuring windows, and installing custom drapes for restaurants, cafes, and her interior designer clients. Maren is the owner of My Atelier. It's a full-service drapery workroom in Marshall, which is a rural town in what's known as Virginia's horse country. And it was in January that Maren received a warning that coronavirus might affect the way she did business. In early January, we were coordinating with one of our clients to do an installation. And we knew that they were waiting on a rug to be delivered from the manufacturer in China. And they weren't getting any calls back. And the date kept on getting pushed and pushed and pushed. And that was kind of the first inkling, you know, that we had that our supply chain might be interrupted. And at the time, that was, you know, our big concern was, oh, well, you know, some maybe fabrics and stuff coming from Asia would will be delayed. And we need to start preparing our clients that our lead times might be affected. And for Marin, a shipping delay was a relatively small problem to have, at least at the time. 
My Atelier was a business that had grown out of the basement of her childhood home. Her mom had started sewing drapes for friends and friends of friends back in 1985. Moran officially joined the company in 2015. My background is in the arts, and let me tell you, they don't offer enough business classes in art school. But I knew that the only way for a small artisanal family business to survive in the 21st century was if we really approached this as a business. I didn't want my family's business and all of that my mom worked for for so long to, you know, to go away just because we weren't prepared to compete. She stepped in to run things in 2017 and then relaunched the company as a wholesaler. The business grew from a mother-daughter duo to a team that as recently as March 1st included four part-time workers, two installers on contract, and Brian, her first full-time employee. The crowning achievement for Marin was when she was able to sign a lease for a commercial storefront. Marshall is a small village. It's three blocks of Main Street, and a lot of the businesses here have been here for 30, 40, 50 years. And it's a village that is changing, and it's a, it's a community that I really care about. So part of me also felt like I was doing something good, not just for myself, but for my community by renting out a storefront that had been vacant for you know six months, and that I could be a, a presence in the revitalization of rural America. And that was, that was really important to me. And so it was worth the risk. The risk of taking on that additional monthly rent expense. But Marin was projecting 2020 was going to be a good year. In fact, the best year yet for my atelier. One of the things that I'm proudest of is we've kind of moved up from six or seven installations per month, which usually is at least one or two rooms to doing whole houses at a time. So we're talking, you know, dozens of draperies, full day installations. So that's a significant increase to what we were doing in years past. That is until coronavirus started to spread. Breaking news. All restaurants and bars in D.C. must stop serving sit-down meals in just a few hours. That's right. Mayor Muriel... Fast forward into March. I was installing something on a Monday at one of our clients that's at at one of the top restaurants in D.C. when they got the announcement that they were shutting down all the restaurants in the D.C. area. And I, you know, it, it was just hearing the you know, voice of the GM telling the rest of the staff that I knew this was serious. I got in my car. I decided to text my old boss in New York, who's been a mentor for me for many years. And he called me right back and he said, you know, it's funny that you're texting me asking about coronavirus and what you should do for your staff, because I am the first positive corona victim in this hospital in New Jersey. And I've been here for, you know, four days and this sucks. And, he's, and his statement was, shut it all down, shut it down right now. You need to keep everybody safe. And I sat with that for a while. And I talked to Brian and, I, you know, we basically, I told him, I was like, this is not worth anyone's health. On her drive back to Marshall, Marin was thinking about how she could make this work, how she could make her employees feel safe in the space they shared. She could create disinfection protocols and possibly assign tools, but she couldn't pack up the long work tables or send the industrial sewing machines home with her employees. And then Virginia Governor Ralph Northam issued a stay-at-home order for the entire state. Our message today is very clear. That is to stay home. This weekend, 
some of our beaches and other recreational areas were literally packed. So today, I'm announcing a stay-at-home order for all Virginians. Under this order, that was the first day that our county had a positive coronavirus case, and that was the day that I was like, guys, we're going to take a couple weeks and, and regroup and come back. And so I think just emotionally and mentally, we were all kind of at a breaking point. We were on track to do, you know, between two hundred fifty and $300,000 this year in um, total gross revenue, and that would be up 20% from last year. But, you know, payroll alone, we're talking, you know, five or $6,000 a month. And so I've had to, you know, I've had to cut their hours until we have a way, of, a workable way of them working from home because I've got, you know, one person who's immunocompromised and has kids. I've got, you know, a couple older people that this is their supplemental income. As much as they want to keep coming in and as much as I have the work here for them to do, I, I just, I can't in good conscience ask them to come in and work until we know that it's safe for them to do that. Marin is, for now, not sending out her contractors to do installations. She's furloughed her part-time employees, and she's advised everyone to file for unemployment, which meant that a handful of drapery workers in rural Virginia joined the millions of people dealing firsthand with the economic fallout of this public health crisis. The real moment for all of us was the first unemployment insurance claims number after multiple states had issued shelter-in-place orders. And that number was 2.3 million. That's Brendan Greeley again, the FT's U.S. economics editor. That number that week was the first real data-driven, non-anecdotal sense of how bad this was going to be and how unprecedented it was. A bad week was in the 300,000s. Recently, we've been having closer to 200,000. And so that gives you a sense of the nature of this collapse because that's not just businesses stopping. That's businesses letting people go. And pretty shockingly quickly, sort of within two weeks, Congress had come up with a package for $2 trillion. That's a lot of money. The Federal Reserve has stepped in at an unprecedented scale to get more money into the financial system. Now, Congress, the Treasury, and the Fed are moving to get cash into the real economy. A good portion of the bill is trying to stop the bleeding, so to speak, by expanding the Small Business Administration's loan program. The Small Business Administration has an existing loan program that makes about 50,000 loans a year. And this is for working capital for small businesses. So what Congress did was they used that vehicle, the existing SBA loan program, they modified it, they put $350 billion behind it. Um, So the way in which they modified it was they said, it's basically a grant. We're going to pretend it's a loan because it's easier to get this done if it's a loan. But if you use this loan to cover your payroll for two months, then the loan is forgiven. This is called the Paycheck Protection Program. They have to scale that up to basically every small business in America. There are between 20 and 30 million small businesses in America. If you look at surveys by the National Federation of Independent Businesses, they've said 92% of their members have been affected by this crisis. So we don't know yet how many businesses are going to have to borrow money, but it's um, wildly out of scale with anything we've seen before. From the beginning, there have been questions about whether the size of the program matches the scale of the need. 
I heard from U.S. Bank. It's one of the largest banks in the U.S. by deposits. It's also one of the the biggest uh, SBA lenders by volume traditionally. In a normal year, they get a high 600s of closed SBA loans. Uh, since last Friday, they received 50,000 applications. That's the scale of the problem right now. Uh, and so what is happening through these loans is that banks are accepting paperwork, trying to figure out how to confirm that the paperwork is in order, notifying the SBA that they have made the loan. Again, they're not getting permission from the SBA. They're just telling the SBA, we did this. So the SBA has it on file. And then in eight weeks, the SBA is supposed to pay it off and the banks take it back off their books. There have also been issues with actually getting the loans or the grants to businesses. The FT reported that the day before the program was set to launch, U.S. banks still hadn't received guidelines or the necessary documents to start accepting applications. By the end of that week, we'd hear of another 6.6 million Americans filing for unemployment. I like to think of it as that the Fed and the Treasury have a last mile problem. When you're building fiber optic networks to put together internet connections, it's relatively inexpensive to run fiber optic cable to the beginning of the neighborhood. Getting it from the beginning of the neighborhood to every house is incredibly expensive. And so we have that problem right now with loans, which is that the Fed has been working with regular banks, as many as it can, to encourage them to make loans to small businesses. It has been uh, easing regulation. It has been saying, you know, what its guidance will be for encouraging them to make these loans. It's been putting together facilities to say, look, we're going to buy assets. It's doing what it can. The challenge is the last mile of all of this credit that the Fed's trying to push out right now goes from the bank to the business. And what we're finding is that those relationships are not nearly as robust as we thought they were. One way to think about it is only half of small businesses in America even use bank loans for funding. Um, a lot of them are run by families. They, they run from their personal savings. They run it from retained earnings. They borrow money from relatives or friends. This is how businesses work. And so if you don't have an existing relationship with a bank and you suddenly find yourself because you've been shut down overnight in need of a loan, that process, and we're finding out even today, is very complicated. So all of these relationships have got to be locked down one after another. And you're talking about businesses that don't necessarily even have a relationship with a bank to begin with other than a checking account. And so the real challenge is something that the Fed has never done before, that the SBA has never done before, the Treasury has never done before. You have to use the institutions you have available to you, which is banks, to get money out to as many businesses as possible. And the shot clock is running because these businesses are trying to figure out whether or not they're going to hold on to their own employees. Every day is crucial. Back in Marshall, Virginia, all Marin can do is wait. I've called twice in the last week for my local bank asking, you know, when is it time to apply for the PPP? When is it time to apply? And they keep saying, We'll get back to you. Leave your number. Oh, actually, you were supposed to leave your, your email. Leave your email and then we'll, you know, we'll send you all the information. And I've got all of my reports ready. I've got all of my returns. I've even downloaded and filled out the form that the, you know, SBA has provided. And up until now, I still have not received any information from my bank about how they are going to handle the application process. So at the moment, it's a waiting game. In the meantime, the Small Business Administration has said it's approved close to a million applications, totaling more than $230 billion as of Monday evening. 
and Congress is at odds over a plan to expand the program by another $250 billion to meet demand. Beyond that debate, though, there is a fundamental question that remains unanswered, which is whether this rescue program is really working. I think that what we need to look for that will tell us whether or not these programs are working, and in particular the small business lending program is working, is what our initial unemployment insurance claims look like from the state level. If we get another terrifying initial claims number in the millions, what that tells us is that businesses are still letting people go and that they do not feel heartened by the loans they've gotten or the speed of the loans that they're getting or the terms of the grants, um, and that they don't feel like there's reason enough, even with the existence of the grants, to keep people on staff. Uh, So if we see another scary number Thursday, that'll be an initial sign of, you know, whether these programs that were made up on the fly to help small businesses are going to work. The clock is ticking for Marin. She's trying to fulfill orders that customers have already placed, but her operations are still in limbo. I can't collect until I deliver. Then there are a lot of projects that I can't deliver, but I still need to cover my overhead. You know, I applied for the SBA disaster loan over a week ago now. You know, I'm still waiting to hear back from my bank about if they'll be offering the payroll protection loans. I mean, to be completely honest, I every day that goes by, gives me less faith that I'm going to qualify for any assistance. We're positioned in a very interesting place in the economy. You know, we're we're not essential workers, but we are essential to our clients who they need their business to keep producing revenue for them. And if the chain collapses, then it's going to affect a lot more people than just my employees. So, you know, we're all just kind of rallying together to do the best that we can and hope that it doesn't get worse. This week, Moran is bringing her one full-time employee back in. He'll be in for split shifts. She's also trying to find work that her part-time workers can do from home. She says that if she does end up getting into the Paycheck Protection Program, her plan's to provide back pay to her workers because, as she says, it's the right thing to do. And though very few business owners can say that they're prepared for the fallout from this kind of a pandemic, Marin has absorbed the lessons of economic crises of the past. I was old enough to remember the 92 recession. I didn't understand it, but I understood how stressed out my parents were. I was in high school during 9-11. I you know, graduated from college in the middle of the 08 recession. I have experienced so many huge shifts in the U.S. economy while I was in a position that I couldn't control it, that I think I always grew up knowing that, you know, things could change at any minute. She told our producer Oluwakemi how growing up with the specter of hyperinflation in Brazil in the 80s and 90s shaped a lot of her thinking today. I remember my dad talking about how my my family back in Brazil would go to the grocery store in the early 90s and the money that they got out of their paycheck couldn't cover groceries because they were changing the prices on the shelves as you were walking through because inflation was so out of control. And so I love the concept of Jechinha, um, of, you know, the little way that Brazilians always manage to, you know, survive. I do think that being the child of immigrants has made me a lot more resilient and have almost a fatalistic attitude that at a certain point, the only person that you can depend on is yourself. You can't depend on anybody else to bail you out because my family grew up in countries where the institutions could not be depended on. So does that leave you like optimistic about <laughs> about anything? 
<laughs> so, I mean, I don't have a choice but to be optimistic. I have four or five families that depend on me for a paycheck. And if I crawl under my work table and, you know, cry for the next two hours, that's not going to get anybody paid. So all I can do is keep moving forward, keep trying to do right by my clients and by my employees and help manage all of their uncertainty and make sure that they know that I'm not going to bail on them. And if that's optimism, I mean, I'll take it. You can read more at FT.com. And you can get in touch with Oluwakemi and I directly at BehindTheMoney at FT.com. We're still running our survey, and we'd love to hear from you. Please go to FT.com slash BehindTheMoneySurvey and fill it out for a chance to win a pair of Bose headphones. This episode was reported and produced by Oluwakemi Aladisui. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.